Hey everybody, this is Pastor Todd, and you're listening to the Grace Community Church Sermon Podcast. Well, hello, Grace family. Thank you for being with us on the last Sunday of 2020. I think I can hear cheering from five days in advance, and it's been an odd year, hasn't it? <laughs> Glad to see it out. I think it's probably important to remember that, um, you know, as the, the maxim circulating Instagram has it, that we may all be in the same storm, but we are definitely not all in the same boat. And so the lines have certainly fallen to us in pleasant places, so it is important to remember that. However, 2020 has been a trial for all of us in our own ways. One of the ways it's been a trial for me in particular is this will be the, the fifth time that I've uh, preached this year. And normally by about time number five, I've, you know, had a glass of wine with some people. We've shared, they've disagreed with me on several things. Um, and so other than basically a few of you kind of eyebrow raise, I can kind of read that. That's about all I've got for all of 2020. So I'm looking forward to ministry in 2021, where hopefully we can do a little bit more of that. I think Josh probably feels the same way in some ways as well. So here's hoping and praying that next Christmas Eve, we get to have our Christmas Eve service here all, all together. Which brings me to my second thought, which is if you have not watched the Christmas Eve service, you need to pause me immediately. I am not offended. And you need to go and watch it. It was absolutely glorious. It was bananas. Um, Todd and I have ministered together for, for a couple decades, actually, which seems weird now that I say that, but a couple decades. And I remember during the service, there was only a handful of us here in the room. And I said, do you remember back in the day, we used to do a, a youth service where we had, you know, those kind of broken plastic floodlights that someone had jerry-rigged into a couple two-by-fours that we'd spray-painted black to give cool lighting. And, uh, you know, and I, and I leaned over as we were worshiping. I just said, you know what? It's the same Holy Spirit, and it sure was. He graced us that night, and even in the watching of it, it was absolutely incredible. So you need to go and watch that. You need to go and watch that right now. Now, I don't know what you did after the Christmas Eve service, if you watched it on Christmas Eve. I can tell you what I did. I went home and did the same thing that I've done for the last 27 years, which we watched the movie White Christmas. Now, I don't know why... We've chosen in the Jones family to watch White Christmas. I, I actually don't. Um, in my family growing up, we watched Alistair Sim and uh, Christmas Carol, you know, and he's got his hair all crazy. I don't know, maybe Catherine and I decided that when we got married, we needed our own movie. So we just kind of picked White Christmas, Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney. I don't know if there's any fans out there. But we went home and we watched it. And there's a couple favorite moments that I have of White Christmas. There's my kid's favorite one since they were a little kid with Danny Kaye singing choreography where he's like, a doctor that is dying, which I love that part. That's hilarious. The second part that I love, this kind of always musical uh, element, is the uh, Gee, I Wish I Was Back in the Army song, <laughs> which kind of goes, Gee, I Wish I Was Back in the Army, and uh, carries on from there. One of, the, one of the lines goes like this. Bing and Danny Casing, there's a lot to be said for the army, a life without responsibility, a soldier out of luck was really never stuck. There's always someone higher up where you can pass the buck. Oh, gee, I wish we'd back in the army. 
Now, in a stroke of beautiful coincidence for writers everywhere, the first audio recording of this song by Rosemary Clooney was released on October the 14th, 1954. Exactly six years to the exact day that Harry S. Truman used that phrase in a campaign speech justifying his decision to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Truman liked the phrase. In fact, he had it on his desk. The buck stops here in a kind of a walnut 1950s desk sign that sits in the Truman Library now. But what does it mean? Well, a quick Google search will tell you all you ever wanted to know and all you didn't want to know about the phrase, especially, essentially this. In the Wild West, uh, poker games were kind of the norm and they were a little bit high stakes. If you've watched any Westerns, you know that often a poker game can end with uh, someone cheating and uh, being put to uh, six feet under, proverbial bed. So the Frontier game was modified to allow for everyone to have the advantage of being the dealer, because the dealer had a certain advantage to it. And so how it was modified was that you would rotate dealers. We, we do this nowadays, you rotate dealers. And to keep track of whose turn it was to deal, they would pass something around the table. And it invariably was someone's knife. I don't know if that was a threat, but uh, it was someone's knife that usually had the bone of a buck, had the, the antler of a buck on the knife handle. The buck, past the buck. There we go, that's where it came from. So being a dealer gives you that added advantage in a couple of ways. Ostensibly, it gives you knowledge, you know, and you're the last person to go. And so it gives you power. So if you didn't want that power, you could pass the buck. Truman recognized that part of the role of leader was to make decisions, um, including the decision, probably the hardest decision of all time that I can think of, the decision to drop the atomic bomb, hence the phrase on his desk, the buck stops here, and almost certainly referenced eight years later by Irving Berlin in A White Christmas. Our last Advent sermon for 2020 asks the question, what does God's divinity mean for us today? And among other things, it means there's always someone higher up where you can pass the buck. That's what it means. We have in the person of Christ, not just a man, which is important, not just a Hebrew, which is also important, and not just the Messiah, which is obviously pretty important, but we have God, literally where the buck stops. Now, there's a number of heresies that have emerged over time around the person of Christ. I mean, that's not surprising. As followers of Christ, Jesus is the linchpin to all our theological musings. His humanity, his Jewishness, his messianic credentials have all come under fire and been defended against various heretical views through the ages. However, Jesus' divinity has been questioned perhaps more than any other. In fact, we still have a number of sects, Christian sects, that would say that Jesus is just a really good guy, that he is not actually God. So the belief that Jesus is God is key to our understanding of the kingdom, and John knew right away, it is I who should be baptized by you. So let's look at our text for this morning. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The first thing Jesus' divinity means for us is perhaps the most encouraging thing of all. He comes to us. He comes to us. Then Jesus came to John. He comes to us. While we were still sinners, while we were still Gentiles, while we had no hope, no God, he comes to us. Friends, this is amazing. It is the key to the gospel. It is in many ways the definition and expression of grace. He comes to us. We don't go to him. He comes to us. He finds us. He takes that bruised reed and that smoldering wick that Isaiah prophesies that we are, and he blows on it. He shelters us. He brings us into the shelters of his wings. Jesus comes to John. What does Jesus' divinity mean for us? It means that he comes to us, so we must go to others. With a kingdom message. A message that has at its heart and its core the very being that this is a God who comes to us. He comes to you. It is one of the reasons that you will find, if you don't know already, that's what I mean by this 2020 mask situation we have before us, that I am so much less concerned with issues of morality and dogma and so much more concerned with issues of justice and relationship and mercy and grace because he comes to us. Do you know how much we, the church, make the world come to us? As N.T. Wright claims, we are not saved from the world, but for the world. The second thing that his divinity means for us is that God has a plan. This voice from heaven knows the plan, it seems. This is my beloved son is from Psalm 2, the messianic song talking exactly about Jesus. All of the Jews who would have heard that would have recognized that messianic reference. It's a prophetic song. Then even more poignantly, with whom I am well pleased is a quote directly from Isaiah 42. This is perhaps even more indicative of God's plan and one that I cannot but stop and read. If you ever reference Isaiah 42 as a preacher, I'll give you a tip. Just read it. It's awesome. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, 
and a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. That's part of the plan that Jesus is ushered into in this moment. Of course, as the commentator William Barclay points out, this prophetic section in Isaiah ends in Isaiah 53 with the suffering of Christ. This plan, which included John, and includes us, is the making of all things right through the cross. And not just in some personal salvation type of way, but in an entire cosmos type of way. The divinity of Christ means that God has a plan, that we are part of it, that it leads to the cross and ultimately to the empty tomb. Again, I need to rely on N.T. Wright to flesh this out. Forgive me just for quoting him just a little bit more. If the cross is to be interpreted as the coming of the kingdom on earth as in heaven, centering on some kind of messianic victory with some kind of substitution at its heart, making sense through some kind of representation, then the four gospels leave us with the primary application of the cross, not an abstract preaching about how to have your sins forgiven or how to go to heaven but in an agenda in which the forgiven people are put to work, addressing the evils of the world in the light of the victory of Calvary. Those who are the put-right people of God through the cross are to be the putting-right people of the world. That's the plan we're in. That's what God's divinity means for us. Now, we need to be careful here because just as that path was a path of suffering for Jesus, it is also often a path of suffering for us, his people. My best analogy, imperfect as it may be, comes from construction. I've spent many years in construction. I've dug many holes by hand with iron picks and shovels, and there is nothing quite like discovering an excavator. Even in that, there are many holes that an excavator is not equipped to handle. And it is just in the recent past that I've discovered through my son, Caleb, that there are even bigger excavators. He works in uh, the Lafarge pit in Caledon and drives a machine that's as big as this room. It's absolutely massive. We put our hands to the shovel, bloodied and blistered as they may be, because we are part of God's eternal excavation plan in which my small suffering will seem insignificant in the light of God's glorious putting right of all things, his excavator. This plan that we're a part of has a pretty major plot turn at this moment recorded by Matthew. For 30 years, Jesus has been a carpenter, laying out foundations, laying brick, talking with co-workers about Roman occupation, taking smoke breaks, grabbing coffee when it was his turn. And then he goes to John in the wilderness. This is an odd story, really. And, and over the last few weeks, as I've been reading the commentators, they've all struggled with this moment because it is a little bit of a weird moment. I mean, we cry out with John. I, I shouldn't be the one baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. How does that even make sense? How does this act fulfill all righteousness? Jesus was sinless, the perfect Messiah. So what righteousness needs to be fulfilled? So I'm going to go off recipe here. 
So indulge me for just a minute. We can always delete the recording later. Okay, this is baptism. Baptism isn't really a Jewish rite. It isn't. The only instruction to baptize is found in Leviticus and has to do with the laws of menstrual purity, which, by the way, if you want some fun, you and the wife could grab Leviticus 15 and sit down for a cozy reading. It's a weird one. For all of us feminists out there, I've spent the last three weeks reading commentaries on Leviticus 15, and there are some pretty cool interpretations of that moment that I don't have time to get into, but they don't conform to our kind of common patriarchal ideology. So, so that's good. But this is the only instruction in the Torah about mikvah, or a mikvah. It's a bath, essentially, with all sorts of rules about it. Look it up. You can find ancient ruins of mikvahs, or you can go to present-day ones all over. According to Google, there are 10 in Toronto if you want to go and find them. So what was the mikvah used for in Jesus' day? You're going to love this. The rabbis directed a mikvah to be used if you were going into the precincts of the temple, to the sanctuary, you were also to use a mikvah if you were a woman getting married for the first time. And ready for it? Anyone who wanted to become a convert to Judaism. Jesus brought those who were far off into his saving work on the cross. Well, when did that happen? A bride who wants to come into the Holy of Holies, who is a Gentile no longer? Could it be, in a very symbolic way, that we who were crucified with Christ and baptized with him in his death were also baptized with him into life? That in some symbolic way, John's baptism allowed us who were far to be included in the death and life of Jesus. That sounds like something God would do. The divinity of Christ means that God comes to us, that God welcomes us in to the redemptive work of making the world new. The divinity of Christ means the buck stops with him. Merry Christmas, everyone, and Happy New Year.